good morning. Um, why in the world do professional athletes have to? Am I muted? No. Okay. Well, as long as it's not my fault, I'm good. Now, um, why do professional athletes have to keep practicing? Right? Yeah, because there's no such thing as mastering sports, right? And if you don't, you tend to lose what you have. Why do really amazing musicians have to keep practicing? Because there's no such thing as mastering. And if you don't, you'll lose what you have. Same thing with every great skill that we have. And so why as Christians do we have to keep reminding to love one another? Because there's no such thing as mastering it. And if you don't, you'll lose what you have. And that's what Paul's going to do for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we look at 9 through 12. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, the last time we were together, we made the transition to the very practical part of the letter where Paul is challenging the church um, it, to, to practice the gospel that he has been laying out for those first few chapters. And he, he started with this area of holiness, and he affirmed them, like, you're doing this, I'm so pleased at, at, at what I've seen in you, and I'm so pleased at the reports I've gotten with you, you're doing it. And it was about holiness, and so you, you're walking, and you're living in a way that pleases the Lord, like you're applying the gospel to your everyday life in a way that pleases the Lord. Um, and then he focused on holiness, the will of God. Your holiness. You've got to know how to possess your body or to do your marriage. There's two interpretations. In a way that is in holiness and honor. Right? And you weren't called with a saving calling for sin. You were called with a saving calling for holiness. We left chapter 3 and the the great wrap up of his prayer that transitioned us was that we would be able to be blameless in holiness at the coming of Jesus Christ. And so that was uh, the last time, and he really focused that in on one specific example, the specific example of sexual morality within the culture. And we talked about how they had come out of this hypersexualized culture that was filled with every kind of, of, of deviancy in the area possible that was bombarded with this in every way, and that one of the specific ways holiness needed to look in a culture that was this dark was in this area specifically they could shine the brightest by their distinction from culture. And so it's a reminder to us in a culture that is hypersexualized, that is so dark in this area, that our purity and our holiness in this area can shine all the brighter in the midst of it. Right? And so he did that. We didn't get to do point three, but point three was all about motivation. And so motivating one, there is a certain fear component, right? He says, God is an avenger in these things. Christian, God will judge you. Christian, God will bring consequences in your life. Christian, God loves you enough to discipline you, even though it's not pleasant, but afterwards it'll, it'll, it'll bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's an avenger. But then the main motivation, you weren't called. The saving call of God did not come to you convert you, change you, adopt you into his family to keep living the way you lived before. But instead, he, the saving call of God came to you to produce holiness in you. Right? Salvation leads to holiness. And then today we move to the second big category of practical application that he's going to unpack for the rest of the book. And that is the area of love. Right? And he's going to challenge us to keep growing in our love. And so as we live out the gospel, 
holiness. As we live out the gospel, love. And again, he's going to affirm them with very similar language. And he's going to challenge them to keep growing with very similar language. And so he challenges them to do more and more. But then it has these two big areas of implication. The first area of implication is this is what it takes to have a church that's healthy and flourishing. Love for each other makes a difference in each other's lives. But our influence of a Jesus kind of love doesn't stop at the doors there. Right? Our love for each other has a way of impacting the lost world around us. And so he's going to look at both of those areas as he applies this command to love today. So uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 9 through 12. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And we urge you and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that a fresh burden, a fresh gospel desire would be birthed in my heart and in all of our hearts. That we love one another. And that we love one another more and more and more with each choice, with each action, with each response. We choose love over self. We choose generosity of self versus selfishness we choose to press in when it's hard and uncomfortable we don't choose to withdraw we choose to love when it would be so much easier to distance but god that is a fruit of your holy spirit because we can't do it and so father fill us with this kind of love and then let it work itself out in how we actually do and speak love and we pray that in jesus name Amen. So, love and live in a way that impacts the church and the lost. Love and live in a way that impacts the church and the lost. First, love each other in a way that shows clear, continual growth. Love each other in a way that shows clear, continual growth. Um, There's this thing with newlyweds, or if you're in a brand new dating relationship, like it's the honeymoon phase, right? And you're all loving, and you have these cute little nicknames, and like very sickening public displays of affection, and everybody's thinking, oh, it's the honeymoon phase. But I wonder, what's wrong with us that the longer we're married and the longer we date, if it's God's person, what's wrong with us that we aren't more in love now than when we started out? And the reason I say that is, I think, as we become Christians, especially if we're in a a group of healthy people that love us, we become Christians and we love each other, right? And we may discover this thing called community for the first time, and it'd be really amazing. But then it just stays there. It stays immature. It stays untested. It doesn't push any further. And the question becomes, why have you been doing this so long? And your love isn't any deeper. 
Why have we been doing this so long and our love's limits are the same as they were back then? And they may even be smaller because our capacity has gone down. Why have we let our love stay small, stay limited, stay confined? And I think that's exactly what Paul is going to push against in our life is a love that has set is a love that would set limits. And so we tend to draw the boundaries of our love around this is how comfortable I am. This is how much time I have. This is how much I'm willing to give. This is how much I'm willing to think about. This is how much I'm willing to invest in. And we draw confines around our love. And I think what Paul does is he affirms that in the Thessalonians, man, your love. You're known for it. But then he calls them to stretch that boundary further and further and further. As long as they're on this earth, let that boundary continue to expand. And I think that's the same thing for us. I would just challenge you and I would challenge me. This is a, a loving church. Would you let Paul take your boundaries another step further? Would you let it go broader? Would you let it go deeper? So let's look as we jump in. Now concerning... Um, he just left the command to holiness, and it's interesting that Paul puts these two big categories together, and it's the category one is holiness, right, that you walk in a way that pleases the Lord, that you, you, you know it is the will of God, your sanctification, so category one, holiness, and then category two, love. And the, all the commands that he gives from, from there, all the really specific stuff of life are going to fit into one of these two categories, kind of interesting it's the same category as first john has light love right so he's talking about here's what assurance of salvation looks like here's what it looks like if you want to put yourself a test in a way that 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 gives you an assurance and a baseline of salvation light that's holiness purity love and then he ties it to all the different levels of our life so it's god's will it's our relationship to him it's internal right that we possess ourselves with holiness and uh, that we have a posture of love. It's before a lost world. And it's in the Christian community, brotherly love. And so it's, it's important that we have holiness and love in all of these different areas. And generally speaking, all things being equal, which I think is what he's hit, hit at last time and this, like you don't look like those who don't know God. You do look proper before those who are outside, those who are lost. Is There's this way in which all things being equal... Our following of God and our, the lifestyle of the gospel, which is integrity, and the lifestyle of, of, of the gospel, uh, which we'll talk about, when, when we live the lifestyle of the gospel, generally speaking, all things being equal, there will be a respectability to our lives, a credibility to our lives before a lost world. Right? All things being equal. But what happens when God collides with culture what happens when god collides with the world and and now all of a sudden i have to make a choice between will i be relevant will i be accepted will i have credibility before the world in an area or will i please god and i think we've kind of bought into the lie in the in the church in america that if we will just be quiet about a few things Although that list keeps getting longer, right? If we'll just be quiet about a few things, God will be okay and we'll have credibility with the world. Right? We can be more relatable, more liked by the world if we'll just not talk about certain things and we just won't, you know, we'll just kind of fudge on a couple of little truths. And, and, and it's okay because those aren't the, really the main thing. Let's just get back to Jesus. And, 
And that's not at all what we're looking at here. That's not where Christians get their impact from. It is when we live to please God that generally we'll have a credible life before the outside world, but occasionally we'll have a conflicted life with the outside world. And in that moment will we choose, I want a God-pleasing life over I want a relevant life. Now again, that shouldn't, that's a false choice all the time, but there are times we will have to make that choice. Let's jump in as we look at it, because we're going to run into those today. So now concerning... Brotherly love. Now, it's interesting. Brotherly love, like it's the word philos, and so if you, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? It's that word. It's the word for brotherly love. And what's interesting about this word is almost universally outside of the New Testament, it speaks of love within a family unit, right? And so anytime in Greek culture that this word comes up, 9.9999 times out of 10, it is dealing with a family unit, not a religious group. Open up your New Testament, and it almost universally speaks of love within the Christian community. Why? Because the point is that when we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, when we enter into conversion, we don't just enter into something that's kind of like a family as if it's an analogy. We enter into a new family. A new family united by the blood of Jesus. A a new family that takes primacy over our old family. And you're kind of like, well, you know, in America, that's not a big deal, right? Well, I I kind of really have my family. And the church can be kind of like my family. And if I'm far away from home, community is a little more important to me. Or if I don't have the kind of home life that was as healthy as others, community is a little more important to me. But, But in general, I can have my family... And I can have my church, and I can put them in kind of the places I want them to be. That is not the luxury of the people Paul's writing to. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians about brotherly love, he's writing to a group of people that when they embraced Christ, it meant oftentimes being cut off from their families. When they embraced Christ, it meant being cut off from their community. When they embraced Christ, it meant being familyless. And now all of a sudden it matters that we have a new family in Christ. Now all of a sudden it matters that our new father is our adopted father God. Now all of a sudden it matters that I have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles that surround me and surround my kids. And we've lost something when we lose that transition. When I met Christ, I was welcomed into a brand new family. And I love this family as my own family, not like my own family. So that Brotherly love, he says, according to brother, or about brotherly love, you, you don't have any need for me to, anyone to write to you. And so what is he saying? He's saying, like, there's nothing going on in the church that meant I needed to write this out for you, right? And so there's no sin, there's no rebuke, there's no failure. I'm not writing this to correct something going wrong in your church. I'm writing it because of how important the topic is, not because there's something in the church that I've got to to fix or tweak or mess with. And so you don't need me to write this, meaning you're, you're living it out. It's part of your experience. You're doing this. And remember, they're doing this as those who have been ostracized from family. They're doing this in a way that's fa- in a group of people that's facing affliction and facing pressure and facing persecution. They're doing this as, as people in hardship. And the more hardship that you have, the more you need people surrounding you to walk through hardship with. So concerning brotherly love, you are doing it. You don't need me to write a correction to you. 
And then he's like, it's doubly redundant for me to keep talking about this. Why? Because you were taught by God to love each other. Now, I take that to mean two things. Right? You were taught by God to love each other. How? First, the apostle's word, which is the word of God, you were taught that part of gospel salvation is gospel love. But the second thing I think that means, you were taught by God, is that hardwired into your conversion is a recoded DNA for loving each other. When you are converted, sown into that new man DNA is a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a love for the church. It is a love for the people around you. And there is, there is no way to break the link between salvation and love. Right? And this is what John says. The test of your salvation. Do you love your brother? And I don't just mean with words. He talks about very tangibly love your brother. Because it's like you can't say you love God and hate your brother at the same time and both be true. The test of your salvation. It's also the highest Christian virtue, isn't it? First Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. It is the foundation of the Christian community. It is the essential ingredient of the Christian community. In Colossians, he talks about, and the highest of these is love. God, when he saved you, hardwired you for love. God, when he saved you and we instructed you in the word, we taught you love. So what is love? I'm going to give you a definition. I've compiled it. It's not original to me, uh, but I've taken it from just a couple of definitions. And so it's got four parts to it. Valuing someone so much that you joyfully sacrifice for their highest good without needing to be repaid. That you value someone so much that you joyfully sacrifice, meaning you've placed such a worth on their life that whatever it costs you, whatever you have to sacrifice, is not worth as much as that person is to you, so you can joyfully sacrifice because you're making a better investment. There's a more valuable person out there than the thing or the the cost that you're paying so that you joyfully sacrifice for their highest good. Now, I think that's important. It's their God-defined good, right? Because sometimes love means saying, no, you can't have ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sometimes love means, no, you can't play in the street, even though it would be a lot of fun. Sometimes love means saying, no, you can't keep on the path you're going. Sometimes love means rebuke. Sometimes love means correction, right? And so if, our, if, if their defined good is my goal, then I can't say no and I can't correct and I can't push them away from what they want because, you know, I love them. I have to just affirm them. I have to just let them do what they want to do. No. I want God's best, their highest best. And sometimes their highest best is very opposite from what they want. And I'm pursuing God's best for them, not theirs, right? So their highest good and not needing to be repaid. Because generally the world system of love works like this. I will do something for you. I will serve you. I will, you know, whatever. But I'm keeping score. And if I hit four or five and you hadn't hit one yet, I'm going to push the pause button on love until you catch up a little bit, right? Isn't that the way we navigate our relationships naturally, right? I've got to do a little bit of this, and then they'll do a little bit, so I'll do a little more. Oh, man, or, or hey, they're really becoming friction. They're really becoming hard. This is too much work. Okay, well, I'm going to just stop without needing to be repaid. And so as we think about love, I think there's probably two huge Jesus kind of distinctions for our love. 
The first one being a Jesus kind of love is sacrificial. Because generally, the world loves, we, we love people, and as long as it doesn't take too much time, we'll be happy to pick up their mail for them. We love people, and as long as, you know, it hadn't been a bad day, and I feel like it, and I have enough energy, I'll be happy to come help you move. As long as, you know, my spouse is doing everything they're supposed to do, then I will be happy to do what I'm supposed to do. But I define the limits of my love. And a Jesus kind of love has a Jesus-defined limit to it, which is none, as opposed to a selfish-defined limit, where self gets to set the boundaries. And so a Jesus kind of love is sacrificial. It busts the limits that we want to set on it. And the second way I think we see a Jesus kind of love is we love people different than ourselves. Right? Because this is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mountain. And the greatest sinners on earth love their friends. The greatest sinners on earth love their family. The greatest sinners on earth love the people that are like them. But a Jesus kind of love crosses the lines of economics. The Jesus kind of love crosses the lines of politics. The Jesus kind of love crosses the lines of race and ethnicity. The Jesus kind of love crosses the lines of whatever it is. And so whatever lines where the world says, you know what, we can't really make the jump to loving people that are different than us because it's just not comfortable, it's just not natural. Well, the cross comes in and forms a bridge over between believers across all these lines. You don't have to be taught about love because God in the gospel converted you and taught you about this. And I was thinking, like, what if this became the Christian framework for how we're going to speak about race in our culture? What if it became, I value you so much more, or I value you so much more that I'm willing to hear, even if that means a time of not being heard? What if it starts with, it doesn't end with, but what if it started with a conversation that says, I'm willing to understand you more and take the time to value you and understand you more without necessarily being understood myself at the time? What if I was willing to die to my own opinions, my own explanations, my own perspectives and experiences in order to just hear yours and let you push, put your heart onto me and you know that you're valid and you know that you're understood? What if the church started that conversation? Because here's one of the problems that we've done. If you look out over the narrative now, the world has totally infused its own agenda, its own voice into our current narrative. And you know who I blame? Me. Us. The church. What if we just took our Bible seriously enough to have this conversation a decade ago or two decades ago or three decades ago? What if we began to love across lines then? What if we allowed the church to start the movement and that way it's the church's voice and God's voice and the God's authority that defines the agenda? So we want to get mad that the world is taking an issue and and driving its own agenda, but we don't want to get mad at us because we never brought God's agenda into the plan. And so what if we actually were so taught by the gospel to love that we became the standard bearers in an area where the culture has never come close to fixing? What if that was the starting point? So we've been taught by God to love. Love beyond your limits. Love beyond your borders. And don't ever stop growing in that. 
it will be a thousand, it will be a million decisions on your words. It will be a million decisions on your actions. It will be a million times where you stop instead of start. It will be a million times when you want to pull back because it's uncomfortable that you keep pressing in. It will be a million times where you choose to love instead of withdraw, love instead of suspect, love instead of get angry, love instead of be selfish. It will be a million times in your life, but it is, you've been taught by God. The gospel did this. But they don't just have a depth of love for each other, do they? Like, this is my church. This is my group. This is my city. The Thessalonians, we love each other. We invest in each other. We mother and father spiritually each other. Look at the breadth of their love. And you see how he's commending them. You're doing this, just like he said in the area of holiness. You're doing this. And you're doing it for all the brothers in Macedonia. Macedonia was not the city. Macedonia was a region. They had created a regional family of God that regionally shared each other's burdens, that regionally loved each other across lines, that regionally pressed beyond limits. You're not just loving the Thessalonians, you're loving the brothers of Macedonia. And I think it's so easy, man. Oh, I love Fletcher. I love the people of Fletcher. The people of Fletcher love each other. I love my class. I love my group. I love my teacher. But do I love the big C church? Do I love the church on the street that's struggling? Do I pray for the churches around me? Do I pray for the pastors around me? And, and I hope, like, you know, I've had to have this conversation a lot of times. I hope what you found, like, if you've come here from another church, I hope what you found, if you, if you took our membership process, was like, you know, you came from another church, like, okay, did you give it your best there? Did you leave in a way that was healthy? Did you go back and give it your all? Are you part of God's solution for the concerns that made you leave? And after walking through those questions, because I love the church. I want the church to thrive. I don't love it enough. I need to do it more and more. But I want us to tangibly say we love the church, while at the same time we love our church, the church we're a part of. So they loved the Thessalonians, but they loved the Macedonians. They loved the regional church and their local church um and then we get into the only command of the text and we'll only hit the first part because it makes a really big change after this and so the only command in the text is this we urge you right that that word urge he's been using throughout chapter three and chapter four it's the word for encourage it's the word for comfort it's the word for admonish he's been using it over and over and so here It's positive. It's not negatively correcting. It's positive. I plead with you. I urge you. I press on you. I challenge you. And the first one is the only one we'll deal with. Do it more and more. Do it more and more. Never stop. If you've been in a relationship, and certainly if you're married, you realize there is a thousand moments. Like you can't just say, I love you, and it be done. It's, will I love you after a long day of work, when there's an issue to deal with that I'm too tired to deal with, will I choose selfishness or will I choose love? If you've been deeply wild, wired into a church and, and experienced some problems, the same thing. There's a thousand little moments where you love somebody or you don't. It's not like a one time, I said it for the day, so we're covered. Like It is a thousand daily decisions. And so that's what Paul is pressing on us. Do it more and more. Like You are a loving people, love more. You're a loving people, Loving that little moment where you, you don't want to. You're loving people. Press forward when you want to pull back. You're loving people. Keep going past where it's comfortable. Do so more and more. 
It's the exact same language that he did in verse 1 about holiness, or about pleasing the Lord with the way we live our lives. You're doing it. Do it more and more. And I think what a moment for the church to hear this challenge. At this cultural moment, at the divide in the text, at the divide in the culture between the love in the church, where we do that in the intersection of the world of outsiders, of the lost, in a way that they'll hear it. What a great moment to hear a word. Love more and more. Love beyond what's comfortable. Keep going. Right? And so... We love each other in a way that shows clear and continual growth. There's never a stopping point, right? And then second, live before a lost world in a way that enhances the gospel but doesn't hide it. Live before the lost world in a way that enhances the gospel but doesn't hide it. Have you noticed how loud Americans are? We are loud. <laughs> Me. We are loud. We're loud at, at games. We're loud in restaurants. We're even loud at movies. We're really loud on social media. And I wonder if Jesus could kind of just pull up a chair beside us, would he say, be quiet. Turn down the volume. And then turn up the volume of the gospel in your life. Quiet your life down so that you can ramp up the volume of the gospel. Here's how it works out in me. I'll just give an example that's really today. Like, I want to be so consumed with the facts and figures of COVID. And I want to rant about them sometimes, right? I want to be loud about the stats and the figures and what in the world are we doing? And then I'll delete the, everything I just wrote and be like, is that person going to hear my post about Jesus tomorrow if they read this post about COVID today? Right? Masks, no masks. Stats, or no stats. School or no school. Am I going to lose my ability to talk about Jesus if I keep talking about it? And then more than that, has all this facts and figures and news and what's happening consumed the time that I spend with Jesus and cultivating my relationship with Jesus? And we do that with so many different issues that are facing us now and always. Like we get so consumed with the outer issues and the outer law and the outer things that we're willing to talk in a way that then I can't go back and say, hey, my church has a live stream. I'd love for you to tune in with me. Hey, Jesus is really amazing. I, I really wish you would, you would listen to the gospel from me. And we lose, our, we lose our voice for the gospel because we're so loud with our politics or we're so loud with our issues or we're so loud about the laws that are being made. What if we just turn down the volume a little bit so that we can turn up the volume of the gospel? Part of what the Reignite Challenge is all about is this. I imagine you, like me, have been so cluttered by news and events lately. Right? I mean, big stuff. Like, it's not the little trivial stuff of, like, a normal year. Like, we've had, like, ten years' worth of stuff in six months. But I imagine what that's done is it's filled your heart and your mind up so much that it has crowded out some of your abiding in Jesus. And what we want reigniting, Reignite to do is to start shrinking the voice out there and expanding the voice of God. And what you'll see when you read your bookmark on the Psalms, 
is it's going to be so specific to the times we live in. Like, here's real experiences. Here's real pain. Here's real injustice. Here's real refuge. Here's real enemies. Here's real slander. Here's real fear. And here's a more real God. And here's how we process this pain. And here's how we process this hurt. And here's how we process this isolation. And here's how we process this enemy. And you're going to find that God's word has plenty to say about exactly what you're facing. And that God's people have faced it before. And they found God in the middle of it. Or they've been redirected back to God in the middle of it. And that's what we want to see happen in your life, in your family's life, in your community's life, and in our lives. Okay, we've got to get to these commands. Here we go. So we urge you, and then there's four, they're called infinitives. They start with two, T-O. So we urge you, do love more and more. But notice this, your love for each other immediately turns into living before a watching and lost world, a kind of life that is governed by love. Therefore, it makes an impact on the lost world around you. And so do this more and more, love each other. But then he makes this U-turn into how we live before outsiders. Because there's a deep connection in how thriving we are as a church and loving each other and how much witness we have, how much authority our witness has, authenticity our witness has to a lost world. And so he moves it from do this more and more to live a quiet, aspire to live a quiet life. Now, negatively, what do I think that means? Or negatively, what does that mean? A quiet, the opposite of a quiet life would be a combative life. Right, A life that's marked by disputes. It's marked by contentiousness. It's marked by uh, combativeness. It's marked by constant, you know, uh, just turmoil, right? And so aspire to then instead live quietly. And what I would say positively quietly means, it means to contently, uh, to quietly live in contentment and to quietly live in faithfulness to God. This is what Timothy talks about. You know how Timothy says to pray for your government? Don't pray for your government to institute Christianity. Pray for your government to leave you alone. Right? Pray for your government to allow you to live a quiet and peaceable life. What does that mean? Pray for your government not to infringe on the way you practice your faith. Pray for your government not to mess around with your freedom to live before God, to not mess around with your ability to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know where he wrote this to? Rome. Like, Rome had hundreds of miles of strung up dead bodies of people that they they disagreed with. Not a great place to live if you have dissent. Not a great place to live if your religion is unrecognized as official before them. What do you pray for the Roman government? Would you just let them leave me alone, God, to follow you passionately and to declare you to the people around me? And so, kind of apply that here. I want to live quietly. I want to live in a way that is not contentious and not disputing, but in a way that is faithful, that shows Jesus well and declares Jesus well. But now you immediately see the problems, right? It's not quite that simple. It's not quite that simple when you have a, a, a culture of free speech and First Amendment rights. It's not that simple when there are real weighty issues that need to be spoken to. And so before I get into anyhow navigate this, what I will tell you is this. This is why God desires an intimate relationship with you built on humility as opposed to here's five steps with how to do Christian, uh, to do quiet Christianity in the midst of, <clears throat> you know, 
the First Amendment and political dis- uh, disputes. He wants you to be so wired into him that you lay down your rights because he bought them and that you're able to humbly live out the gospel in front of people. And then when you speak, you're able to speak with a graciousness. When you speak, you're able to speak with, and, and you won't get it perfectly, right? You aspire to live a quiet life, meaning there's times you're going to insert when you shouldn't have asserted. There's times you're going to be quiet when you should have spoken up. Because God never tells us to be silent on issues of right and wrong. Now, the problem is our culture has turned everything into right and wrong. Right? And so, again, how do you navigate this? An intimate relationship to Jesus, in humility, and in close relationship to other people around you. That's how you decide when to speak and when to not speak. That's where you allow God to determine not just do I speak, but how do I speak? When do I speak? What do I speak? Because it's so easy... In all the normal stuff and the big stuff, it's so easy that if I'm right, at least in my own mind, if I'm right, then I kind of get to say what I want, how I want, when I want. Versus allow, God, I want to live quietly. I want to speak. Because there's times you're going to have to speak about things of God that are totally like not accepted by the world around you. And so this is not a call to lose your Christian distinctiveness in order to fit in with the people around you. It's a call to navigate this in a way that's a little different than we navigate it. And so, generally, here's how Chris tries to do it. Hopefully, 9.9 times out of 10, you don't see me make political posts. But hopefully, 9.9 times out of 10, when there is a directly biblical or moral issue, I will not be ashamed, and I will not be embarrassed to be on God's side of that moral issue, and then try to do it in a way that's winsome. Right? So hopefully, you're not going to have a string of political posts from me ever if you do, Pick up the phone and rebuke me, right? Because that's, that's a very intentional try. But, like, whether or not the polls on pro-life tilt my way or not, I will not be ashamed that I love life. And whether or not, uh, when, it, when it comes to injustice, like the kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace. And so I, won't want, I don't want to be silent on issues of justice. I want God's voice on that. The world may not like God's view of sexuality, may not like God's view of gender, whatever it is, I will not be ashamed of, of God's, the things that God speaks to and cares about. But I will still do that winsomely and, and humbly. I'm not going to turn people off of Jesus because of my politics. Like, it's not cool. All right. Mind your own affairs, people. Mind your own, you know it, right? Negatively, don't get up in other people's business. Positively, don't you have enough stuff in your own life to be busy with? Like, take care of your own affairs. Take care of your own business. Take care of the the responsibilities you have and get out of other people's business. Now, balancing that, I do want you to be in genuine relationships of growth and change, but you know the difference, right? There's a huge difference in somebody that partners with me to grow in my faith and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ Huge difference, and a difference we all know, between that and somebody that just wants to be in everybody's business, wants to know all about everything, wants to be meddling, and wants to be gossiping, and wants to be on the inside, and wants to be able to talk about it all. There's a huge difference, right? Mind your own business. And yes, the people around you are your business as partners in growth, not busybodies. You're going to deal with busybodies in chapter 5. Mind your own affairs and then work with your hands. Man, how does the time go so quickly? Work with your own hands. Positively, what does that mean? 
You work to provide for yourself and to contribute to the people around you. You work for yourself to provide for yourself underneath God's provision, right? And, and to contribute to the people around you. In Ephesians 4, when Paul's talking about thieves, he says, thieves steal no longer. And you're like, yes, you shouldn't steal. Does he stop there? What is the goal of ex-thieves? That they don't ever steal again? No. The goal of an ex-thief is work with your hands so that you're able to contribute to people in need. So instead of greed that takes, have work that gives, work that is generous. And that's the goal of the Christian life. It's not just like, let's stop doing bad stuff. It's like, let's positively do the things of righteousness so that we're able to help and give to other people, not just take from other people. And so it's work with your hands so that you can provide for yourself and your own needs and are able to then contribute to those who are truly needy around you. So work with your hands. And the opposite of that would be laziness and idleness. Um, and dependence, which if those things are chosen by your lifestyle, will absolutely ruin your witness to the people around you, right? And so a commentator makes a really important distinction. There is willful dependence, meaning your choices and your actions and your patterns of life have produced this. And even then, like, we want to help you turn you around and get you headed back in the right direction. It's not like, okay, well, you made your bed lie in it, like, Thankfully, Jesus didn't do that to you, and so we don't do that to others. But there is a place where that becomes enabling, and that's what we're not willing to do. We're not willing to take away from helping the genuine needs of people that get forced into those situations to to get these perpetual needs because you keep making the same choices. We want to give you the resources to turn around, right? It's not like just deal with it. It's let's deal with it together and let's get you on the path. But then the second, there's unavoidable need. There's seasons of your life. There's events in your life. There's events in your relationships that create a need or, or within your physical health that create a need uh, in the outside economy, in your health, you know, uh, losing a spouse, whatever it is. There are things that create need for a season or create need for a lifetime. And we all want to be able to provide for ourselves so that we can also contribute to the real unavoidable needs. And so there is absolutely no shame in being in need. The thing is that we live our lives in such a way that we're able to meet those instead of taking the resources that would go to those people when they really need it. And then look at the point. So that, the result, so that you may walk properly before those who are outside. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. What's the point of brotherly love? What's the point of a quiet versus contentious life of faithfulness and sharing your faith? What's the point of minding your own business and not being known as the town gossip and the town busybody? What's the point of providing for yourselves and giving into society and giving into the church community versus taking from it? What's the point? So that when the lost world sees you, they will ha- you will have a credibility to your witness. That there's a respectability in how you follow God and a credibility to how you follow God that when you speak about him, the outside world sees you as worthy to speak on the topic, sees you as an appropriate authority. And so will there be times where the world absolutely dislikes us because of the, the, the views we hold on God's truth? Yes, that's okay. But if somebody knows us on balance, will they be like, you know what, 
I see in them, I don't like their God at all, but I see they take care of their own business. I see they're respectful to the people around them. I see the way they conduct themselves. And I at least have to respect that they, they believe it. And so I think Christians have these two really bad pendulum swings. Pendulum one swings way over here to alienation and separation. And when you swing way over there, it's like we're going to be this weird little subgroup that kind of locks the doors and we keep all the Christian people safe in here and we keep that dirty world out there. No. But then they swing the other side, and I think it's where we are now, imitation. We become just like the world. And this text would call us to walk right in between those with Jesus so that the way we conduct our lives on par has credibility to our witness. So the way we conduct our lives on par is right there in the middle of the world not separated out from it. And so non-biblically weird to it that they don't want to hear what we say. So that we can walk properly and we won't be dependent on anyone. Let's view a few practical things as we close. First, do a love check in your life. How limited are the boundaries of your love? And I think it's, I, I do think it's something we have to ask ourselves. Do we have a problem with loving someone different than us? Is there some sin of racism in our life? Is there some sin like uh, James talks about where we despise the people that are poorer than us? Or we give more value to the people that are richer than us? Partiality. I think we need to be confronted with is our love much more selfish and self-defined than we would like to admit? And then positively. You know, we're seeking to to love each other and we're seeking to grow and we're seeking to push in. Would you let this challenge you as you check your own life? Like, God, where where would you confront me in my love? Would you say, like, you're you're doing it and God just wants to expand it one one more section? What's that section? What's that person? What's that area? What's that choice? What's that pattern that he wants to grow? All right, so do a love check. Second, ask God to grow your love. If love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and not something you can manufacture, then how do you get it? You pray. Whatever you find in in application one is what you pray about in application number two. And you take it before the Father and you ask for an expanded heart of love. You repent over the things that you see there that shouldn't be there. You repent over um, all the things we just talked about. You repent of it and then you ask God for a, a bigger heart of love. And then lastly, or do a testimony check. Is there anything in my life that is going to diminish my credibility before a lost world? Now step back and ask it a different way. Is there anything about my life that's going to diminish my credibility before a lost world that has different politics, issues, laws, and beliefs than me? I wouldn't say you should never speak to those issues. I would say you certainly should be careful when you speak to any issue that's not Jesus, that's going to turn off the world that's different than you. Again, I think I balance that out through the sermon enough that you can navigate that. But there are things you see in your life that are turnoffs to Jesus and people around you. Turnoffs to Jesus on secondary issues, or third, fourth issues. Lastly, take the first Thessalonians challenge and the reignite challenge. You have two more weeks to share your faith with someone you believe to be lost. Go for it. Just open your mouth and dive in. Like, I promise it's going to be okay. Do it.
And then pick up the journals, pick up the catechisms, pick up um, the resources. And, and if you got your own Bible, that's fine. The journal is just something that if it would be helpful to you do it, if you're committed to it. But take this challenge. Because I think we're all needing some junk cleared out of our minds and our heads and our lives. And we need that filled back up with the graciousness of God, with a remembrance of God, the God who understands. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, increase our love. God, in Jesus' name, make us people who have credibility before a watching world. God, in Jesus' name, make us people who love right in our homes with a brighter Jesus kind of love. And all across our culture and all across our churches with a more Jesus kind of love. God, do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, we're going to stand and close in song.